Hello and welcome to episode seven of Logicast, the AWS News podcast. I'm Carl Robinson, CEO and co-founder of Logicata, and I'm joined by my co-host, John Goodall. How are you doing this week, John? I'm wet. It's very wet, wet here. Mm. <laughs> I'm hoping you're referring to your immediate surroundings and uh, not you yourself. <laughs> I have a damp left sock, but other than that, it's all good. Oh, okay. Is that because uh, is that because you're still wearing Crocs between the house and the shed, and you've oh ready yeah to winter footwear or <laughs> Crocs all year, mate? Crocs all year. Yeah, yeah. Well, I actually have two pairs of Crocs, and uh, it. Probably wondering, people are probably wondering why we're talking about Crocs so early on in the podcast before we've even spoken about anything to do with AWS. But we do have some Logicata branded Croc charms uh, on their way to us right now via FedEx. Should be with me in the middle of the week, so that's why uh, that's why we wear Crocs all around because we can brand them. Um, so. Uh... What more could you want than company branded Crocs? Anyway, uh, if uh, this is you, you may have uh, you, you'd be forgiven for thinking this podcast was about Crocs. It's not. It's um, if you haven't joined the podcast before, uh, we talk about AWS news. So once a week, I curate, I personally curate a uh, list of AWS news, which we distribute via our AWS News Roundup newsletter. Um, and then John and I handpick a number of those articles and we take a little bit of a deeper dive. So this week, we've got another five articles to talk to you about over the next 25 to 30 minutes. And the first of those articles um, is about RDS. We talk about RDS a lot. I guess it is one of the more popular AWS services. Um, but this week, we've got a new feature for RDS. Um, so uh, Amazon RDS Events now includes attributes for filtering with Amazon SNS. So uh, as with all of these headlines, a bit of a mouthful, that one. But uh, tell me more, John, about uh, Amazon RDS events now including attributes for filtering with Amazon SNS. I mean, yeah, it, it, it is what it says on the tin. Um, how can I word this? So events that you can consume through SNS have two main components that have the message attributes and the message body Now, the message attributes are things like uh, where it's come from how big it is the format it's in that kind of thing and then the message body is what you'd expect it's the body of the message itself you can pre-filter based on the message attributes so you might want to say I think the attributes also include things like the types and that sort of thing, if it's like an insert or an update or whatever. Um, so you can pre-filter based on that because you might only care about a certain type of event. You know, I only care about create events. I only care about events coming from this particular database. I only care about, you know, that sort of thing. So the upshot of that is by pre-filtering, you're only triggering SNS when you need to as opposed to sending all of the events kind of carte blanche into a lambda and then using the lambda to filter everything down and then triggering the SNS from the lambda. So what it's doing is it's reducing the amount of code that you need to write, uh, reducing the amount of cost that you're going to have in your account. Lambda's functionally free, but it will have a cost eventually. Uh, it's reducing complexity because you don't have to kind of sit there as a new person and work out. So why is this going to Lambda first and then not going to when it could just go straight to SNS? So it's now just going straight to SNS. Generally, it's making things simpler, which is great. I mean, the article calling it an article is, I think, a little generous because it's two and a half paragraphs. It's more of a yeah, news item. It's it's an announcement. I think yeah. it's a, a brief announcement. Um, but yeah, as the announcement says, you can. It, it lets you offload the message filtering logic from the subscribers and into SNS itself. 
so the subscribers of the things that SNS is sending it to. So you're offloading that filtering, pushing it upstream. So you're sending fewer messages and writing fewer code. Fewer code, less code. English, John, um, which is great. It's, it's what we like, you know. As I think it's Kelsey Hightower that has a uh, a no code repo. That's a GitHub repo that's got nothing in it. So the the less code you can write, the better, frankly. <laughs> so he's actually got a repo, a no code repo with nothing in it at all. Yep. Can you can you put things in it? No. Or does he get? An, you can't. You can't put anything in it. Okay. No. <laughs> I think the contributing guide is you don't. That's the great thing. <laughs> nice. Uh, we should share that actually. And uh, I should say to the listeners as well. We we always talk about these articles, but uh, you will find the links to the articles in the show notes um, if you want to read them um, uh, for yourselves. Um, so uh, I I had something to say at the top of the show as well this week, John, and I I completely forgot. I passed my uh, AWS Solutions Architect Professional this time last week. How could I forget that? It's uh, what a what a joy that was! I'd never been so excited to pass an exam. I really was hopping around my office when I read that email, and uh, so I was pretty excited. And uh, I guess the main reason I was excited is because that makes me more certified than you now. How does that make you feel? You've always been more certified than me. Oh, hang on, no, Certi- certifiable. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you've got more associate certs than I do as well. But um, as as I keep reminding you, I. I skirt the minimums of certification requirements. I don't see the point in getting more than one of any of these things. So, I'm you know. I'm done now. I think I'm done now. I'm not going to get. I, I, I think I've accepted that I I don't have the uh, focus to uh, get all twelve and get the gold jacket. Um, as much as I would love to be able to sport that gold lame jacket walking around reInvent, um, I don't think I've got uh, enough uh, <laughs> enough attention span um, to study for another eight AWS certifications. So I have to stop at the four, but I'm looking forward to you catching me up. Not that it's particularly relevant to this article, but uh, I, I did want to just squeeze that in this week. Of course um, you did. And, you just uh, got to squeeze yeah, me, didn't you? Know, you? Know, yeah, I've got to squeeze you a little bit to, to put some pressure on to catch up. Uh, but, uh, you know, also... It, that certification lasts for three years, so so I can milk it for another three years before uh, I have to do uh, another recertification. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, on to the next article then, and uh, it's our good friends over at InfoQ again. Um, this this one is announcing um, that uh, AWS is supporting the transfer of IP addresses between accounts. Uh, which is a new uh, feature where you can uh, transfer elastic IPs between accounts. So I'm guessing uh, from the fact that this is newsworthy that this you couldn't do this before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that would make sense, wouldn't it? And here's yeah. the thing that you've been able to do for 35 years. Let's just tell it. No, it's new. It's uh, InfoQ are largely refing. Um, is it a Jeff Barr article? I think Jeff Barr's done some bits with this. Um, yeah. Uh no, not Jeff, but you know, various people in AWS and some Jeff said something in this as well, and and Corey Quinn has of course also said some things about this, which you'd expect because any even vaguely interesting piece of news, his face is there. Um, <laughs> love you, Corey. Honestly, please have me on your podcast too. It'd be great. Um, <laughs> do we do we think Corey's listening to our podcast yet? Probably not. <laughs> Maybe we'll tag him in the show notes and. Uh... <laughs> Um, so yeah, this is new. This is this is actually really cool. This is there's a couple of limits to it, but let's let's start with what it is, and then we'll talk about the limits. So, what this is is transferring elastic IP addresses from one account to another within a few limits. 
significant it's significant because elastic ips are the ones that you buy effectively you don't pay for them if they're attached to something but if they're not attached you're paying for them they're static ipv4 i think i don't think ipv6 is supported yet and then you can attach them to ec2s to load balancers to you know anything that you might want a public facing ip on great lovely there are a few reasons why you might want to retain an IP address and move it to something else. The example that comes to the top of mind is where you don't manage your own DNS or where you don't manage the DNS that's pointing at that IP address, but you need to swap out a load balance or change it, whatever, you know. So you get to hang on to that IP you want to rather hang on to that IP address and just change kind of what's underneath it because you can't change that at the DNS level. That's that's kind of the obvious one. Um, another one is where you would want to... Well, actually, no, that's kind of primarily it. Um, but the others are things like where IP addresses have been whitelisted and vetted by security and all that sort of thing because those types of technologies haven't really caught up with the world of immutable infrastructure and everything's a cow, cow, cattle everything's cattle then you can just destroy it and create new ones whenever you like because they just sort of haven't caught up yet we'd like them to but they haven't yet so ip addresses have been sort of vetted and validated and that sort of thing and then you know if you needed to move something change an ip address it's a support ticket it's a migration project it's a 24 hours for a turnaround and then two weeks for them to implement it and then a networks team that breaks something that hasn't broken something and it's definitely your fault and then they magically fix it without telling you and you know you know the pain so that's why this is quite cool because there are a number of scenarios where just not having to change an ip address is, is still useful the limits, as I alluded to earlier, is you can't move it from one AWS organization to another organization. You can move it between standalone accounts, you can move it between accounts inside an organization, but not from one org account to another org account, which presumably is a security thing. Yeah, so you couldn't, uh, if you were kind of changing managed service providers for example who both happen to be in aws could you move it from one of those to another managed service provider's account would that depend if it's in an organization or yeah it'd be org dependent um i think the way you'd have to do it at the moment is you'd have to hop it through something like an intermediary account so you move it from an org account to a non-org account and then into another org or you yeah move it in or you create an account in your org move it into that and then drop the account out of the org and yeah. then adopt it elsewhere um so there's still a little bit of the fandango going on but it's it's easier than it used to be that was my nickname for many years fandango carlos fandango of course um, yeah i don't know if you're uh young enough uh, or old enough to remember that uh, young enough to remember that advertisement uh, <laughs> carlos fandango super wide wheels back in the days when it was okay to um market tobacco on television it was an old hamlet advert where the guy had fitted his carlos fandango super wide wheels to his ford anglia and tried to drive it out of the barn but unfortunately the barn door was not wide enough and the wheels fell off um so he smoked a hamlet uh, to console himself gotta love those old uh, those old hamlet ads <laughs> anyway i uh, i digress if we go on uh, another one of my tangents um 
So uh, did you have anything more to say about that article, John, before uh, I either go off on another tangent or move on to something relevant to the subject matter? Uh, no, I think we can move on. Cool. Okay. So the third article uh, that we're going to talk about today is another one on InfoQ. Um, and uh, I know this is a subject very close to your heart, John. Um, so uh, I'm sure you're going to be very passionate about this particular article and have some very strong opinions. So uh, it's the age-old question of uh, cloud formation or Terraform. Which infrastructure as code platform is the best fit for you? Um, we're primarily a Terraform shop. Um, but we have got customers uh, using cloud formation. Um, so uh, what makes one a better fit over Tother, uh, in your opinion, John? Because I know you're a big Terraform guy, aren't you? I'm not a big anything. Well, I'm big, but I'm not a big <laughs> anything. Um, one of the things that I try to live by, strong opinions, loosely held. So whilst my opinions might be strong, if I find evidence, I will change my opinion. I try to live like that. Um Outside of the existential crisis that we're currently enjoying, cloud formation versus Terraform, it depends. Is the really annoying answer. It depends. So you can't do things with cloud formation that you can do with Terraform. And you can't do certain things with um, Terraform that you can do with cloud formation. Um, I'll give you an example of each. You cannot, as it currently stands, create data dog monitors in cloud formation. You can do that with Terraform. Granted, that's a little bit of a contrived example, so uh, a better one is CloudFormation doesn't support multiple instances of a resource, so it's like a count feature. It doesn't support that. Terraform does, which means you'd sort of define, say you want three load balancers or, or, or I don't know, four rules on um, a security group. You just define the list of those ports or whatever that you want open, pop a count in, iterate through the list. That's great. That's wonderful. That says a lot of code writing. You can't do that with CloudFormation. You can with Terraform. What can't you do with Terraform that you can do with CloudFormation? Now, this list is a lot smaller. Uh, you can't write YAML because <laughs> Terraform doesn't support YAML. So that's the obvious one. Um, the other kind of one, it's a bit contrived, but you can't do... Um, how can I word this? You can't... Uh, uh, words with cloud formation there's a it's a transform layer called sam serverless application model and terraform doesn't have a concept of like a transform layer it doesn't have a a way of adding things into the framework to make your life a little bit easier sam is quite good because it will do things like automatically packaging lambdas sam stands for serverless application something um, it'll Model? Model. Probably model. Hmm. Um, well, it's not something, because that's an S. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that um, would be the special, but... special uh, air service. <laughs> yes, it's something okay. completely different. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so SAM is built for serverless, and it adds a whole bunch of types to cloud formation, serverless types. So you can create Dynamo tables, you can do lambdas, you can do API gateway integrations, writing about 30% of the amount of code that you'd need to if you were doing it in native cloud formation and probably about 20% of the amount of code you'd need to if you were doing it in Terraform. Great example that I saw was, um, you know, best languages for deploying Lambda languages, best tools for deploying Lambdas. And it had you know, serverless YAML, it had Terraform, it had SAM, it had CDK and a couple of others. And it was with SAM, it's about 10 lines to get a functional Lambda up and deploying and all that jazz. With Terraform, it's something like 150. It's a lot more. 
Terraform is is the least opinionated, therefore you have to tell it the most things. So that's kind of a thing you can do with CloudFormation-ish that you can't do with Terraform. Uh, yeah, and then the article sort of goes on to compare various things, talking about vendor neutrality. So obviously CloudFormation is an AWS technology, so it's not vendor neutral at all. Uh, Terraform but- is. Can it? Can you control non AWS resources with CloudFormation, or is it exclusively? Not as far as I know. AWS? Not as far as I know. That was um, my understanding. Yeah, I mean, you could sort of do it if you felt a bit cheeky, because it does have a way of running bash commands, sort of, really badly. So you could get it to call out to something else, but you really wouldn't want to. Um, but yeah, vendor neutrality is, is something that Terraform is obviously much better at because it's made by an external company. I don't have a particularly high view of the importance of vendor neutrality because yes, Terraform will work with other things. No, a server in GCP doesn't look like an EC2 instance. They have different requirements in the Terraform. So you can't just say, I'd like one server, please, and tell it where to put it. You need to be more specific than that. Because it's not opinionated, you have to tell it. So yes, you could go off and kind of obfuscate that yourself if you wanted to, but that's a whole heap of work that you just generally don't want to have to do. So I don't have a particularly high view of the importance of that. The thing that I do have a high importance on is modularity. One of the key tenets that um, developers generally tend to try to live by is don't repeat yourself. Dry. D-R-Y. Keep your code dry. Write as little of it as possible. Call it back to itself. You know, write external modules and call them rather than writing the same code twice. Terraform is great at this. It's absolutely brilliant. The concept of a Terraform module has been there since version dot. It's been there from day one. You just write the code, you pull it down from remote source, from local source, from from whatever, and you can just import it and run it. Brilliant, happy days. CloudFormation is better at it than it used to be. Um, It's always offered something, um, but the obvious ones have been uh, nested stacks, which you write a stack, store it in S3, and then pull it down and call it fine uh, SAR apps service application repository which is the same thing just held in a in a repo rather than in s3 um, but they've been kind of you've got to do it yourself or find some public ones um, which have been you know of questionable use since what does the article say since 2020 they now support out of the box support for modules as well so yeah there's there's now a public registry of, of SAR apps. Um, we have one for helping us with onboard customers and things, um, but that's relatively new. Terraform's been doing this since since DOT, since day one, you know. So that's quite a lot better. What else did it talk about? It talks about state management. Uh, yeah, both of them do actually manage state, sort of. Um, Terraform is, I think, a little bit better at it because you can manage it in lots of places be it on disk file in s3 file locking with dynamo which i think is overkill for most cases but it's there um and it'll do things like drift detection at every deployment which is which is brilliant because you really want to know what's going on when you're trying to deploy cloud formation does this as well because the stack 
is a, a it's a stack it's called a stack it's an item in the console in and of its own right but it doesn't do automatic drift detection you have to go into the console tell it to look for drift and then it'll go off and find it it can't remediate drift by itself in the same way that terraform can so if it's drifted too far for it to just be able to wipe the resource out and redeploy it it'll just bomb out on you which is not amazing uh, what else does it talk about? Price, licensing, support. Can't, yeah, we've spoken about all the rest of that. So price, it's all free. Licensing, <laughs> it's, it's all free. Support, good luck. In both cases, I think. The community is pretty active, to be fair. Um, and HashiCorp will quite happily take some money and help you with it in the same way that AWS will quite happily take some money and help you with it. But no one's going to pay that. Well, some people will, but I don't think any of our customers do. Mm -hmm. So, so, which is your favourite? <laughs> Depends what I'm doing. At the minute, Terraform, but that's because I'm writing lots of non-AWS resources. Yeah, I haven't heard you say to me yet, I'm busy writing CloudFormation. <laughs> I have heard you I say you're busy bit. writing Terraform. No, but you, 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 you've definitely been telling me you're busy writing Terraform on a number of occasions, and uh, I've not yet heard you tell me that you're busy writing. I, I'll be listening out for it now, though, John, to, uh, to call <laughs> well, you out you when might, you tell me that you're busy You might have heard when I was, so. which, which tech do I use for this particular thing for our onboarding? And then we went with um, Sam. So Yeah, 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 we did, we did. Yeah, I'll give you that one. All right, let's move on from uh, CloudFormation or Terraform and uh, get back to databases. So this next article is an article on the AWS database blog um, entitled Migrate um, Amazon Aurora and Amazon RDS to a new AWS region. Um, so uh, it's just uh, an instructional article, I believe, on how you might go about moving your database to to another region. Um, let's start with some uh, use cases. Can you think of some use cases why you might want to do that? Uh, cost is one. Cost always comes to front of mind um, because, as we've discussed in a couple of these podcasts now, it costs a different amount of money to run things in one region than another because of yep. cost of data production, uh, cost of sorry, energy production, um, cost of rent, that sort of thing. So, cost one of them. Another one is you might have expanded into an, a new region and kind of withdrawn somewhat from the previous region or your your new region is um more valuable to you or is a bigger customer base or or that sort of thing so you want to serve that region better so there's that um, or as is in the case of at least one of our customers that i can think of who, who shall of course remain unnamed um you just put it in the wrong place in the first place <laughs> and uh well I, i'm not sure that there is a right or a wrong place but uh yeah, certainly. Um, I have seen non people set things up in yes, in a, in a non-optimal region, which is uh, further away from their user base than it needs to be. Um, and obviously, we would recommend the best practice dictates put things as close to your users as you can um, to uh, to minimise latency, etc. So, should we talk about how to do it then? Let's talk about how to do it. Yeah, let's talk about how to do it. As you say, this is an instructional article. It's a blog post. I think we've had a number of blogs from from these chaps which is fine. Um, the, the two sort of obvious options, and then there's a couple of less obvious options. So the two obvious options are Snapshot Restore, which is a kind of a bit of a catch-all for I've done something wrong and I need to fix it in RDS. Be that it's in the wrong region um, or it's not encrypted or something else in there. 
the way you do this is you take a snapshot of your database, you solve whatever the problem is with that snapshot, so you either encrypt it or in this case you transfer it to another region, copy it across, and then you make a new instance from that snapshot. Bing, bang, bong, it goes around in a nice big happy circle and everyone's happy and your data transfer bill goes up a bit for that month. That's option one. That's the obvious option. Option two is you do that, but if you can't afford the downtime that that implies, because the minute you take that snapshot, it starts to get out of date. So if you can't afford the downtime that that implies, because it's a production instance, well, what do you do? You set up asynchronous replication. So you do all of that bing, bang, bong, and it's set up in the new region. And then you have uh, RDS replicating to your new region, and your new region is set up as a read replica. Brilliant, lovely. What that means is it then gets itself up to date pretty quickly and your downtime for moving one to the other is significantly less. It's, you know, it's not hours, it's minutes, if you like. Which is great. We like that. We like that very much. Other options. Uh, automated backup for cross-region migration. So that's kind of the same as option one, but it's just the backups are being automatically delivered to another region rather than you kind of having to do it manually. So that's just doing that sort of for you. And then the one that you might not think of, which is a little bit out there, is Aurora Global Database. Now, if you're set up in Aurora already, or if you're not, but you can move to Aurora because you don't have anything that Aurora doesn't support, you can just set it to go global, which oh, I think that's brilliant. That's brilliant. You just sort of go, right, you're now Aurora. You now live in both of these regions. Bang. And it just deals with it for you. It's brilliant. It's fantastic. So if you were going to migrate, I guess you could say live in both of these regions and then switch the first one off. Could you? Yeah. Yeah, you could do that. Um, you'd want to do that to save cost, but I don't think you have to. If you can afford the extra... the pace of running the price of running both basically if you could afford that and then your app can cope with the fact that it's got kind of a local database uh, because what does it do it's it's sync it, yeah it keeps them in sync more or less um, using bin log replication for mysql it does it for postgres as well but obviously not with bin logs because postgres doesn't use them uh, which is really cool so you can have yeah yeah you can just be running multi-region and poof, there you go have some databases Cool. We'd, of course, be remiss to not talk about doing it natively. So, again, you can back up and restore using native database technologies as well, um, as as you should always be aware that that's always an option to you if you didn't want to go right down in the AWS rabbit hole, if you just wanted to move it from one server to another. You could do it like that. I'm just curious um, whether we've actually had an episode of the Logicast podcast where you haven't talked about AWS backup yet, John. I'm pretty sure it comes <laughs> up every week in some way, shape or form. Uh, but uh, yeah, <laughs> there we go. I'll have to go back and listen to them all just to refresh my memory. Uh, so um, moving swiftly on, because I'm conscious of time, we are getting a little bit short on time this week, actually. Uh, it must be all the waffle about cigars and crocs. Um, but uh, the final article that we were going to talk about this week... Um, and we're going to see a lot of these at this time of year. Uh, but it's uh, 10 predictions and a wish list um, from AWS reInvent 2022. This, this article's on Forbes. And, of course, reInvent is coming up uh, end of this month, I think, uh, very soon, I guess, uh, in fact, because we're almost at the end of the month, uh, sort of end of November, beginning of December. Uh, we're not going this year, but we have hatched a plan to be there next year. So uh, I'd love to be bringing episode 
59 of Logicast uh, from from uh, live from Las Vegas. So uh, watch this space. Um, but I don't, yeah, <laughs> it might have been, it might be 59, 59, 60, something like that. Uh, I think will be yeah. Uh, unless we've got a leap year now, I don't think we've got a leap year between. Anyway, I'm waffling again. Um, so uh, <laughs> so uh, we're definitely not going to have time to uh, talk about all ten of these predictions. Um, so uh, I don't know. Have you got a favourite, John, or shall I just pick one? Um, uh, there's a lot of stuff about EKS here. We've got some about yeah, Lambda. It's, it's the, like the Lambda mm, one. I like the you EKS want... Anywhere. I like that one. You like it? Okay. Let's talk about that then. So, EKS Anywhere. What's that? It's a very deceptively named thing because it doesn't run anywhere. But the idea is you can use the EKS console to manage your Kubernetes clusters on not AWS. Which is... I like that. I like that very much. Because managing Kubernetes is hard. Kubernetes is hard generally like the way you're recommended to learn it is by going through again kelsey hightowers um kubernetes the hard way that's how you're recommended to learn it because it's hard so if and you I can... hope that that's got something in it has it <laughs> yes unlike yes, it's it no code repository it's got something <laughs> in it yeah, okay yes it does because it'd be even harder to learn it if there was nothing in there <laughs> Uh, yeah, so any any anything that lets you manage Kubernetes without having to run it yourself is great for engineers that don't want to have to learn how to do that, don't want to bother with that, or management types that don't want to have to hire expensive engineers that do know how to use that and do that because it's not cheap. People that people like that because it's it's complicated. So if you can run EKS on GCP, I mean you're a madman, but great, love it, brilliant. You, if you can run it anywhere actually anywhere oh i'd be all over that cool well it is uh only a uh, prediction i think um so we're gonna have to see if that comes through true um what about this other one um have you got an opinion on uh aws app mesh getting extended to support lambda i don't really have a huge amount of experience with app mesh so i don't think i know enough to have an opinion um service meshes generally have uh, they're the the realm of kubernetes yeah it's so that everything can talk to everything else without you having to worry about complex routing and all that jazz um yeah service meshes and microservices go together like you know ham and cheese sandwiches brilliant love it lambda is a way of running a microservice architecture it is i've built microservice architectures using lambdas rather than using containers because it's cheaper so yeah if we can make if we can make use of, of functions and service mesh at the same time so they know where everybody is without you having to write complex routing logic lovely brilliant cool well sorry i, I know i put you a little bit on the spot with that one but uh you, you did quite well considering that's why you but, hired uh... me <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so uh, that, that really does bring us to the end of our time for Logicast episode seven. Um, I can't believe uh, it's been half an hour already. It's flown by this week. So uh, so there we go. Um, so thank you very much for listening. As always, um, Logicast uh, is available via all major podcast distribution channels. At the moment, if you want to watch the video, you can only watch it on Spotify, but you can listen to it everywhere else. Um, so please do listen. Uh, give us a review. Um, and uh, if you like it, share it with your friends and uh, tell them to come along uh, and listen to our weekly podcast. We'll be back with episode eight next week. So thanks again for listening and we will speak to you soon.